Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your guests, uh, Misha Goffstein and Chris Church. And we're your hosts, Stephen Craig and Parker Dillman. This is episode 142. Our topic for the podcast this week is supply chain hardware and software security. This topic spurs from recent allegations from Bloomberg about the possibility of a hardware supply chain infiltration in Super Micro Computer Inc., which may have caused uh, security concerns for servers owned by Amazon, Apple, and Facebook. This week on the MacFab Engineering Podcast, we have Misha and Chris to talk more about this subject. Chris was on a previous episode of the uh, podcast, which was about recent Chinese tariffs. That was episode 127. So go take a listen to that if you have not listened to that episode yet. And Misha is new to our listeners. So would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Misha. I am a new CEO uh, over at Macrofab and have been involved with the company for about five years, but formally joined uh, only about five months ago. Um, I've mostly stayed in the shadows, but most of my professional career has been spent in cybersecurity. So this Supermicro case suddenly made my uh, long-time experience very relevant. So I'm looking forward to the discussion here. Oh, cool. Um, so I guess, could you all to explain what was the premise of this alleged hardware attack? Chris, why don't you go ahead? <laughs> yeah, so uh, as, as the story goes, um, someone in the Supermicro supply chain put a device on the the motherboards of these servers after they had been designed. And bef- at some point, they've altered the design, put this new device in that, in theory, allows it to take over the, the BMC or boot management controller of the device. So how did they find this, this attack or alleged attack? Well, it's unclear how they found it. And it's also unclear whether it's really been found, which is where a lot of the controversy is coming from. I think there are, there are a couple of things to note about this particular case. Uh, one is that we're obviously living, if not in the age of fake news, then in allegations of fake news. So as soon as this news broke, um, and, and look, I, I follow a lot of cybersecurity um, giants uh, in various forums. There is a lot of skepticism about whether the story is real um, this always happens, but it especially happens with stories that involve national security. Um, they're by definition are usually sourced from anonymous sources. You can't quote where you got the data from. You can't explain where you got it from. Um, intelligence community is notoriously cagey about what they call sources and methods. So because it's um, it's not exactly clear how they got this information, although Bloomberg cites something like 17 sources uh, for this, right? Um, there is a lot of skepticism about whether the story is real, yet at the same time, it's the very first time we've had a confirmation of what we've always suspected, which is um, uh, supply chain uh, security attack, but not just supply chain, but actually compromise point at a point of man- manufacture, which I'm not aware of ever happening before. There's been a lot of hardware implants, and that's not some of what we should touch on here. What has happened before? What thing? What cases have we observed in the past? What's plausible, and how do the intelligence agencies behave? Um, but we've never had a case where we believe the manufacturing supply chain is has been the vector that's been compromised. That's new. Yeah, I've I've heard of uh, chip manufacturers being exploited, and when like let's say you go get made a a microcontroller an ASIC made, there are uh, cases out there where the company put in their own back doors into like a a ASIC before, like what would go into a modem, which is pre what would be happening on this server. Cause that's like, you know, at, at a chip manufacturer um, and not at the board level. That That's one of the fundamentally different things about this case is that the idea that the design of the product itself was modified in some obvious traceable way to inject this new hardware. I think one thing that everybody's struggling with, and I and I, I think one big reason is because most of the cybersecurity experts are um, are are that are commenting on this are from the Western world, and I think they're having trouble. Um, I mean, it's a tr- it's a problem of imagination. I think they're having trouble imagining why somebody go through the tr- through the trouble of compromising the supply chain when there's such easier ways to compromise hardware. And there's been a plenty of. Ca- one of the reasons why we know that somebody would do this is because it's been done before 
by us, right? Um, the, the NSA is one of the most prolific um, uh, malicious actors out there, and they compromise hardware regularly. The way they do it is by using the access that we have, right? Uh, there's um, there are cases where uh, Cisco hardware. Um, and I believe Dell hardware has been intercepted, intercepted in transit, right? Uh, and implants were inserted as it was being shipped somewhere else. This is something you do when you have access to a particular um, a particular mode of uh, implantation. So because we're not we're not a manufacturing center anymore, certainly not for electronics, the place where NSA goes to exploit their targets. Is um, is the shipping routes right? They try to they, they intercept them with um, with their partners. So a lot of times it's easy for them to go um, after somebody um, if they're shipping something to another country and drop an implant there. I think what one of the things we're failing to imagine is that perhaps for China that's not an easy thing to ac- accomplish at all, or for them compromising the manufacturing supply chain is actually much easier, right? But it, this situation is actually uh, fairly uh, a little bit more intense than that, correct? Because uh, there, there's there's something about you can intercept something in shipping and do a modification to it. But in this situation, the actual design was modified pre-manufacturing. So that makes this a little bit of a unique case in that sense. Because first of all, somebody had to know what to do in that situation and how to modify it. And I assume potentially there's... Uh, there was work put into making it uh, less noticeable. That's right, and I think it's constru- it's instructive to go back and look at some of the known cases of hardware implantation before when the NSA um, dropped implants into Cisco routers. I think the number of known cases was something like a dozen, and I think the number of beacons that they saw were maybe just over a hundred. They chose their targets. They had to f- get physical access to these uh, devices in transit and drop implants on them. I think if somebody was looking closely enough, they could find it. Um, I think the benefit of, of uh, attacking the design, as Stephen just said, is that your footprint is much broader, detection is much harder, and you can attack these at your leisure even many years later when the exploit for your firmware becomes available. Right. So there's been a lot of questions raised why not just attack the software? The attack for the software may not exist yet. The access is what's uh, is a separate problem, and there's usually separate teams at intelligence agencies that are responsible for this. The people that write the software are not the same people that go in the field and actually drop the implants physically. Right? Uh, our our best software engineers are not the ones that are going in submarines and tapping underwater fiber routes. Right? Does that actually happen with the fiber routes? <laughs> I actually can imagine that's like a really James Bond thing to think about. No, look, it's, it absolutely does. And, and this is what really blew my mind after the Snowden disclosures. For me, security world really splits into before Snowden and after Snowden. And I think, you know, if we're, if we're looking at the, the timeline for this, we're very much in a stage where Snowden made a bunch of disclosures. There was a lot of newspaper articles. And then the denial started coming. James Clapper denied it strongly. Everybody denied it strongly, right? Um, what they didn't anticipate is that he had all of the documentation to back it up and he's already leaked it. So before the data dump started happening, from which we learned a staggering number of things, including that, yes, we in fact do modify transatlantic routes and we have both listening stations and the ability to inject data um, on internet links that I thought previously were just... I mean, to me, the the thought of getting a nuclear submarine to go tap an underwater fiber bundle would just, the cost of that was incalculable, and yet the black ops budgets for uh, intelligence agencies are just way larger than anybody anticipated. Um, Not only that, but the data that uh, Snowden leaked didn't just include the description of budgets, but also catalogs that they were were used. Um, I mean, at some point you have to think about the problem of, I got these spies that need access to certain technologies, how do I make them aware of what tools are accessible to them? You publish catalog. Um, so the, the catalogs are public uh, and they're easily searchable. So if you want to kind of rejigger what you, you know your your imagination, go look up Vault Seven catalogs. Look for NSA catalogs, the Ant catalog, the implants that are int- introduced directly into uh, into uh, Ethernet connections. A whole lot of stuff that I just thought physically was impossible because the cost would be prohibitive. They just have access to greater budgets than anybody realized, and everything I thought was off the table wasn't just on the table. It's already been done. 
And I think I want to, want to kind of chime in here on one thing real fast. You know, Steve, Stephen, you mentioned you know the difference of you know the the impact of it being injected in the manufacturing cycle. And I think Misha, you talked about you know the the targeted activities of the NSA. I think what I'm hearing from a lot of people when I talk about talk to them about the subject is this sort of fear that this is a broad based attack. Right? We we go from a highly targeted set of activities that are designed to intercept one particular player. And then we now apply that to a whole segment of a market and anyone could potentially be a target for that. Um, I think we, you know, if we look at just sort of the, the fallout from, uh, was it like Stuxnet, right? When it, when it actually got out of Iran, you know, our own infrastructure was being targeted by that. And so Stuxnet was the the uh, attacking Siemens PLCs in the uh, that's right the centrifuges centrifuges yeah, that, yeah was, that that was uh, that was one time when I was very proud to be an American because that was a super uh, I mean that was a super impressive operation and the fact that they were able to get specific Siemens PLCs that were used in um, Iranian nuclear facilities was mind blowing uh, not a supply chain attack but definitely required level of access that, again, I, I would have thought was impossible. So that was a highly sophisticated attack. Now, what Chris is referring to is that it was specifically designed to target a very narrow range of Siemens PLCs, and yet the delivery vector for it was a self-propagating uh, malware variant. And at some point, it started ricocheting off the Iranian networks and ended up back in our own networks. And, and we were still murky about what exactly happened, but either the malware was modified by the Iranians to attack us back using our own mechanisms, or the attack was just broad enough to where it wasn't just the, the Siemens PLCs that were attacking, and it just affected more infrastructure than we anticipated. But you know, now we're talking about this, this vector that may exist everywhere around us, right? And anyone could be a target at any time. I think we also need to understand the timescale, right? When Snowden disclosures came, and that was about five years ago, he leaked a catalog that at that point was, I think, four or five years old, right? So um, so they got a decade of new stuff now. Oh, absolutely, right? Uh, I mean, the, the, the most impressive thing I saw, and that wasn't the Snowden disclosure, that was the uh, Kaspersky lab, because um, you know we all pretend like our cybersecurity companies are in, you know, multinational in nature, but in reality, they have deep connections to the country of origin, right? I mean, Kaspersky Lab works for the Russian government. Let's be clear about that. Um, I don't know why we buy it and install it in our own intelligence agencies or even commercial um, uh, uh, deployments, but that's besides the point, right? They do a lot of research into what NSA does. They found a um, hardware implant that was done by the NSA where they wrote malware specifically to compromise um hardware firmware, right? Which, again, I thought microcode like that couldn't be compromised, at least not easily, and yet they'd done it. And by the time we knew about it, it was eight years old. Right? And it's also the, a lot of people were talking about how the the device that they found on these server boards were, it's tiny. It's, it's about the size of an 0603 capacitor. And people were still wondering, like, could you even build something that small that could actually actively do something? And the thing is, though, is you can buy a you can buy a uh, uh, a Cortex ARM microcontroller that is smaller than that part. That's got like fourteen terminals underneath it. You can get wa- you can get wafer level microcontrollers that are like that. Which I think is one of the more important questions. I think you know when the stories are flying and the denials start being released, and you know, look, we're seeing we're seeing Apple. You know, highly respected security people from Apple sending letters to their congressmen. There's a lot of kabuki theater of denial going on right now. We just don't know if the story is real. But let's look at it this way. Um, does it really matter if it's real? Because if it hasn't happened yet, how long do we have to wait until it does, right? Um, so I think technical feasibility is an important question. Uh, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on on how would you execute an attack like this one if it was feasible and we do have to think about our uh, manufacturing supply chain as a vector that uh, that somebody could be going after. Are we really even prepared for that? Right? We've we've started thinking about manufacturing as the you know the the lowest common denominator and squeezing every little bit of cost out of it. Is that really the smart thing to do? We know that in the eighties, um, Russia stole 
pretty much all of our supercomputer designs and built their own Intel-like uh, uh, processors and so on. So at that time, we did not allow our critical infrastructure to get manufactured somewhere else. And now we assume that all of these countries that were previously enemies are friends, right? Because they trade with us. So if it's feasible, then what do we do about it, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things I've been reading a lot when I read about this case is people are claiming you know, negative on the feasibility because they're looking for a very complex tool to exist in this piece of hardware by itself. And I think that, like, like trying to say, for example, well, this little tiny piece of hardware is going to run some code that's then going to take over the device on its own or it's going to store a new copy of Flash in there or something. And I think that tends to uh, really undermine how these complex attacks really work themselves out. There are a lot of small, simple things. Right, rather than one big complex piece of code, you take you take individual little vulnerabilities and you chain them together. Uh, so I'm going to kind of jump out there in a you know, completely wild thing here, and I I have nothing to back this up, but this is very you know how I would look at that. Right, knowing if they're trying to target the BMC, the the boot management controller, um, <clears throat> this basically lights out management for a data center, right? And we know that they they run unsigned firmware on those. And we know that they update over the internet. So we don't necessarily have to deploy some sort of controlling code on that chip. What we have to do is when that chip gets some sort of external signal, it puts the BMC in a state that it needs to go look for a new firmware. right? So we start with a very simple thing. Can we send a simple signal to that chip? Can we then use that chip to put the BMC in a state to look for a new firmware? Then we can co combine that with something like a, a, a BGP route pollution that simply for a very brief period of time for a very small portion of the internet redirects where a particular address is routed to. So if you can combine those things and sequence them together at once, you could then execute an attack which results in new firmware being deployed to that device that you now control. So Chris, on the, on the attack vector side, I think there is, a, there is definitely precedent for what you're describing. Um, you know, one of the most misunderstood uh, attack methods out there has been spoofing. Everybody talks about it. Nobody realizes just, it's not that it's complex. Actually, spoofing is very simple. Um, spoofing is very easy to detect. It throw, it, it, you know, it forces your uh, network uh, cards and, and your operating systems to throw off just a bewildering number of error codes. So the reason you don't do it is because it's so noisy and it's difficult to avoid detection. Um, yet uh, spoofing has been done through man in the middle of uh, attacks much much more successfully recently. One of the most one of the most interesting cases where uh, somebody was scraping user identities was uh, forcing them to go to what they believed was a LinkedIn page, enter their password, let them onto LinkedIn through a proxy, essentially, which is so actually authenticating, but quietly record their password. This was done without needing to spoof somebody. It was done by impersonating the. Uh, the LinkedIn uh, login page in transit, you need to be able to be in a data path for that, but we've already established that that's something that's possible. There's a number of ways of of not forcing your hardware implants to beacon all over the place wildly and look for instructions, right? There are other ways of delivering code to them that I think much more still. And I was, I was thinking about this and I'm like, well, what could be another reason to do this to, to attack the BMC? And it would be, well, if you took, if you basically stopped the BMC from talking, you could make the piece of hardware not work anymore. Right, a denial of service attack. And so, yeah, basically now you're talking about, well, what if this this chip is sitting on the BMC bus and it gets one instruction? And so let's say, because what this device was, according to the Bloomberg article, was a six-pin device that's really tiny. It could be just looking for a single instruction, and then it just disconnects the bus. And so then the BMC can't talk anymore. Now you have AWS, you have Apple servers, you have Facebook servers. All these servers just stop working again, uh, working now. All right. So I'm going to keep throwing out existing cases yeah. just to validate that the rationale for that is not as crazy as it sounds. And you guys can tell me to stop because I have a lot more of these stories, right? So um, we know that um, that one of the attack methods is not necessarily just to capture somebody's data or inject uh, data somewhere, right? In cyber warfare scenarios, right, where you're trying to knock out critical infrastructure, uh, this happened most recently in the 
um, the Russian war against Ukraine, which is supposedly not happening, but um, there, it's a well it's a well documented case where they knocked out uh, power grid infrastructure through a denial of service attack, and these are uh, you know these are attacks that you only use a handful of times because once you burn your um, your implant, it's it's known that it's there, and you know that that device has been compromised. But what would it be worth for somebody to be able to shut down? Uh, certain aspects of uh, AWS infrastructure for Amazon Web Services, it runs a lot of pretty important stuff at this point. So I think the motivation would, would be pretty high. Yeah, especially GovCloud. Well, GovCloud, but also don't forget, AWS has a $600 million contract with the CIA um, to run uh, essentially private infrastructure uh, for um, CIA, and they're bidding on a much, there's a $10 billion contract out there that multiple firms are competing for. So cloud is no longer exotic uh, um, with uh, our intelligence community. They're, they're using it now. What's funny is you bring up the, uh, the Ukraine-Russian uh, not war, in quotes. Uh, actually, Steve and I was talking about a, a security exploit that happened two years ago, and it was with a application that the Ukraine was using on their, uh, I think it was the range finding for their howitzers, and it was hacked the the li- the, ad- the Android libraries that they were using to compile it was had an exploit that the Russians put in to basically it would broadcast where you were using that app, the GPS locations, and then the the Russians would come and just you know drop a missile on the howitzer. You know the, another point about motivation. Um, I think one thing we're forgetting is we're, we're always looking backwards. And we're looking at uh, at methods of attack based on what of how the stuff used to work in the past. I think you got to think about how the code is being written now, right? Um, if you're looking at what's in data centers, a lot of it is classic, um, you know, three tier web infrastructure or even client server applications, right? But if you look at what's being written uh, as modern code, we do this at Macrofab, right? We don't have that much physical server infrastructure. We don't even have that much virtual server infrastructure. We are serverless in all the places where we can be. So if your application is serverless and if it's distributed, if it's if it's a Lambda function in AWS that only runs for five minutes, right? If you need to compromise an application, you can't do it by taking over a server anymore. You know, when when we're talking about NSA, you know, um, compromising uh, single or double, even triple digits numbers of servers or routers, that's just not enough, right? Cloud infrastructure is distributed by definition and code can run anywhere. So why would somebody build um, uh, something at a design level, as Steven said? That may be the only way to get things done in the future, right? You know, actually, so I've got a little bit of a question that's a tad bit of maybe uh, physical and a bit of a rewind from what we've been talking about here. So if we have a physical attack, you know, if 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 something has been designed and implemented on yours or someone's boards, or let's just take Supermicro for an example, uh, they they had to go through the process of actually physically getting these units manufactured elsewhere. When they receive these units, I'm curious as to how they were not aware of this. Uh, it's, I understand that you know server boards. If you if you ever look at one, it would be a nightmare to check every component. So I'm assuming the the idea was that it was just hidden within there. But it's an actual physical thing that is different from you know and from the original design. And and super micro was was it was it's not like they're building two or three of these. You know, there's there's a significant amount. I, I would expect that there would be some kind of visual inspection that would catch this, but maybe not. Or, or even functional testing that could have. Uh, I mean, anytime you anytime you deal with hardware implants, you you risk compromising functionality to some degree. So, what really surprised me was um, they were able to get by those functional tests. Uh, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how likely is that and uh, how difficult it is to avoid uh, detection at that level. Because at the very least, it should have been misfiring somewhere, right? Out of parameters. So, looking at the part that's the alleged part, at least it's uh, it's a six pin. Um, uh, what what was it? It's a six pin conditioning signal conditioning so, device. I think they called it a signal coupler. Yeah, signal coupler, which is basically a signal coupler is basically a it's a capacitor. Sometimes it has an inductor in it, but it's basically a known. It's a very high precision capacitor 
inductor network that filters a high speed signal to basically get rid of um, uh, a certain frequency. So like it, it will get rid of ringing on a square wave. Um, so what what the could happen actually is if this if these uh, motherboards had these parts already on it, and then let's say it was it was China, China built an ASIC that fit into that package and made it look like that part, they could just drop it into there and it would work because a signal conditioning device needs power ground for the inside LC network to work. And it needs, and basically two signals go into it and two signals come out of it. And so if the, if it was a microcontroller or an ASIC that was basically just passing data back and forth and just looking at the data until it got a trigger signal to do something, you couldn't you could you wouldn't see that in testing. I mean, you could probably test like your uh, emissions from the board to say, oh, for some reason that frequency is now propagating off the board. But generally, you don't do that after you know you already validated your design. Exactly. If this was already in production, that all of that testing would have been done already. Uh, if yeah. this was if this was full production, the only thing they would have been doing, I shouldn't say only, but but what they would have been doing is the actual functional testing of the unit. And if this device is say in between a processor and its memory, it can just sniff memory and inject whenever it needs to. Uh, or, or you know, we even discussed it earlier. Maybe if it just had the ability to just completely short your memory lines, you, there you go. You've killed all, all thought out of your processor. And my understanding is that the MBS was not compromised. Uh, it had the ability to get compromised through the sample implant, right? So theoretically, th- there there's not a lot of change to the system beyond this um, this un, uh, unexpected part being inserted into the circuit, right? Correct. And... I think it was uh, that it was originally not on the bill of materials or something like there was something about how like the designers of the boards uh, didn't think this part was supposed to be there. Uh, but it would be very easy to add this part. I mean, all you have to do is draw two traces to get power and ground to it and drop this guy in. Right. And, and moreover, you know, it's not uncommon as the device is going into production for changes to be made to it that the original designers are completely unaware of, but are normal and part of the process reacting to any changes or any tests that were failing, et cetera, during the initial production run. Yeah, knowing how the sub, uh, you know, how the substitute components are being selected, there's not a lot of vetting that goes into that selection process, right? Uh, Somebody has to approve it, but yet at the same time, it's not that unusual that that the part numbers change in a manufacturing process, right? Correct. It, it all depends on what the application is, and uh, if you are, you know, required to keep specific part numbers. You know, if you work in medical or safety or you know many other industries, you would be required to have a specific part number. But in a lot of cases, I'm I'm assuming servers would would be one where you could just have an, you know, this component or equivalent on your on your bill of materials, and in that case, they could swap anything out. You know, there's one other aspect, that, and I've seen this bantered around. And by the way, one thing that I really learned over the last couple of weeks is just how little, um, certainly cybersecurity experts, but I think you can say that about general IT practitioners, how little people know about not just electronics. It, it, people will readily admit, look, I just don't know much about hardware. But I think uh, manufacturing right, is just a black box to people. They have no idea how it functions uh, I've learned a ton about it in, in being here in, in five months, but a lot of the comments that I've seen online are largely, I wouldn't say ignorant as much as they're just unaware of how this stuff usually works, right? So there's a, there's a lot of supposition that things would, that, that it will be easier, for example, to compromise a component manufacturer as opposed to compromise the design of a motherboard, right? Um, in, mm-hmm. And I'm not so sure, right? I mean, I've interacted with a couple of component manufacturers, and first of all, their ability to spot counterfeits are is really high actually they have you know as, as i understand it some of them even have fbi agents on staff because counterfeit parts are such a big problem so i think counterfeit parts and ability to just go willy-nilly reprogram components or compromise them at a component level isn't all that trivial at all actually even though there's a lot of people uh, disagreeing about it now uh, manufacturing side of it, I don't see nearly as many controls out there. There, I doubt there is any FBI agents parked at major factories, for example. I, I basically how I see how if this was true, 
how would this I would see this going down is basically China would or whatever agency basically made these fake parts or these parts uh, to replicate this style of part. And one guy went into the factory to the line and said, oh, don't use those. These are better. Use these. And or you got the wrong part, right? Yeah. And that's all it takes because people are like, oh, this would be such a huge like a lot of people would have to know about this attack. Right. And so like the more people know about a, of, of, of an exploit or mo- know more about how to you know gain the system, the less likely it is to last longer. Right. This takes only as agency, right, to, to build the part. And you don't even know what this part could even be used for. Right. And then only one person needs to know what it actually is. And he's the one who takes it into the building and tells the guy to swap the part out. All it takes is just loading the tape on on one machine, you know, swapping it out for one one thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a five minute job. Yeah, and I think that that, that speaks to our, our fundamental when we look at these kinds of issues, we assume, well, isn't there one thing you could have just done to prevent this from happening? You know, we ask we asked earlier, right? Are there tests you can run? Is there a way you can audit the manufacturing process? And the reality is when you've offloaded or excuse me, outsourced the testing, the automated optical inspection, the assembly, everything to the same place, you, you give up a lot of that control. And I think if you're to prevent something like this from happening in the future, it's really about taking a more in-depth or layered approach. You know, if you were to look at these servers and realize uh, how unprotected, for example, the BMC is on these, right? That's probably the weakest link in them. Right, so it doesn't matter how many checks you put through the hardware. That uh, you know, one particular service running on there gives you full control over it, and it's not not heavily guarded. Right, so no amount of checks you can put in there are really going to you know give you a hundred percent security, knowing that there there are so many vectors and so many ways to attack that particular thing. Yeah, and look, control infrastructure has been a vector for a very very long time. Um, we know this because if you look at the NSA and catalog, it's riddled with uh, various controllers that are used to upgrade motherboards and hardware. Um, the, the, this is the NSA doing this, right? Uh, the target hack, right? That was used. Uh, you know, that used uh, an ability to to remotely upgrade um, um, uh, BMC software <laughs> applications in the field, right? So the, the the things that we use to manage the things are usually the very last thing to get upgraded. Uh, they probably will run ancient uh, Linux kernels that you know we pray that somebody can't access, and this implant would give you access to a very old kernel. Yeah, that that uh, target hack that was the credit card point of sales attack, right? And that right. was a, uh, that was through a funny enough an Internet of Things uh, <laughs> air conditioner or it was a air control module that was on the same network as the point of sales and they were able to attack that. That was the initial vector, but ultimately yes. what they compromised was the point of sale system Correct. that ran a BMC, a different BMC, right? This BMC software, a BMC agent on it. And it was the upgrade infrastructure in that agent that got compromised. Correct. But yeah, how, it was interesting how they first got into it. And it was like how church was saying earlier, is you start with the, the smallest thing you can do and step up into where you need to go. Yeah, that's that I think is the fundamental here. There's there's no one thing you can do in the hardware to prevent this. What you have to do is be able to think like the attacker, right? And look at all of the different little things that can be combined and look at each step and say, does that give me one more level of access? Does that give me one more level of access? And you know, I mean, the reality is there's you know, there's probably no chance you could have detected this part, you know, post manufacturing. Right, but the question is: Is could you have mitigated the effects of any part added to it after it was manufactured? Yeah, and I think this is where the, some of the misconceptions about security come into play. I think if you talk to a lot of security people, there's just a lot of you know jaded, old-time guys that are pretty cynical about the stuff. And you know, the prevailing um, opinion is that we're you know we we're not winning, we're losing. In fact, I think the opposite is true. The reason these attacks are becoming more sophisticated is because we are getting better at detecting the stuff that happened yesterday, right? Now, 
detecting hardware implants, detecting attacks against components on motherboards that operate as their own um, as their own operating systems and are autonomous, essentially. They're not centrally managed. We're not aware of them. We can't scan for them. Um, security technology for that just doesn't exist, right? So why go after it? That's the next frontier. We've gotten pretty good at defending everything else. Yeah, short of basically randomly sampling your 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 product and then disassembling everything and then taking basically you'd have to take die samples of everything and compare it to known good die samples like images that's the only way i could think of making a your hardware robust in terms of security and even then you don't know if even your sample images that you're comparing against would be legit scans like what if your your I, the IP you don't even know about. So like, let's say your microcontroller already has an exploit put into it. I think one way to deal with this, and I actually think this, if if it's not this particular case, it'll be other cases that convince people that it's necessary. But I think one b- big outcome for this, because I think it's going to take a very, very long time for us to develop any technology that actually identifies this. So I think the technological solution is not coming for a very long time. But some of the solutions I think are just purely structural, Right. Nobody forced us to offshore all of our manufacturing, right? Nobody forced us to assume that hardware has no value, and especially the people that manufacture it bring bring no value to the process, right? It didn't used to be this way. So I think at some point, the simplest change you can make is just if it's critical, if it's going to end up in a cloud, if it's going to end up on anything that requires uh, defensive posture, you don't build it in a lowest, um, you know, in a lowest priced. Uh, geographical region. You build it somewhere where it's harder for the adversaries to come and 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 get into your uh, supply chain. I even think that, for example, Mexico would be preferable to China. For example, right? We have a very very good relationship with Mexico. Some of their latest trade challenges notwithstanding, we're still reliant on them, and they're very reliant on us. I think it'd just be more difficult to go to a Mexican manufacturer and convince them to drop an implant than it would be in China. In China. I mean, I don't want to remind you what happens when you say no, right? Wait, what what happens when you say no? <laughs> <laughs> um, you may go away. But look, this is actually something that was in a Bloomberg story. They they didn't exactly go after uh, Supermicro itself. Supermicro uh, offshores their manufacturing to China and to sub-contractors uh, in China as well. So it's those places where... The subs are being, you know, are being farmed out to other subs. They went after the smaller manufacturers and twisted their arms. I think in some cases they said, uh, "Do it for your country." When that didn't work, they said, "Do it for your family or else." Uh, I don't know if anybody turned them down, but I think you could use your, your imagination for what happens in China when you refuse overtures of of, of intelligence, right? <laughs> Welcome to the Macrofab Conspiracy Theory Hour. <laughs> Alex Jones will join us next week. Yeah. Oh no! <laughs> I I swear if that if that guy says anything about Macrofab Engineering Podcast, we might have to change the name of the podcast. <laughs> we, we, we might need to get a bigger podcast host. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So we've talked about the underlying premise of the hardware attack or potential hardware attack, uh, general structure of intelligent agencies, and then like existing public cases. Is there any other cases we show like this? Um, there's there's a lot of cases that I mean, just this. I think people just underestimate the range of hardware implants that have already been developed, and you know the ones that are. And look, this is embarrassing, right? But the ones that I've been that have been. Widely, uh, you know, uh, we widely know about, and it's not just Snowden, right? Snowden disclosures were massive. We're talking about gigabytes of data dumped, but there was also the NSA Vault Seven, and I forget, I, I think it was shadow brokers that uh, stole just an ungodly amount of data from uh, NSA and CIA. So um, that wasn't that was post Snowden, right? That you know, those disclosures just kept coming. So a lot of the um, our intelligence agencies lost a lot of their tooling now. Some of these um, tools were pretty old, but we also know from Eternal Blue, for example, that that was the um, the exploit that uh, led to NotPetya and several other really massive attacks later on. Is that these exploits have been out there unknown for eight years or more? So as long as nobody knows about them and they're not burned, um, our 
uh, our intelligence agencies use them very successfully. So there's been an incredible amount of tooling that they lost and, and just weren't able to use anymore. So look, it's very instructive to go out there and read. About, I mean, some of these catalogs are just fun, right? I mean, I, I feel bad that they're out there because obviously that compromises our ability to um, to to, wa- to wage the campaigns that we need to wage. But at the same time, it is fascinating reading, right? So what, one of the most interesting uh, tools that I saw in that catalog is um, it's a um, it, it compromises the uh, the Ethernet jack and it broadcasts a 45 megabit stream within I think something like a kilometer in distance. So you can I mean think about how you would have to use something like this, right? You would have to implant it in a field, but you would also have to collect the data in the field. But get access you get to it is unconditional. We're talking about all data. Uh, at very high uh, uh, speed rates, and you know this is the this is where you got to really understand how these uh, agencies operate. I think there's 1,200 people in uh, uh, in uh, uh, tailored access operations stationed in San Antonio, and those are just the guys that write the software, right? They're not uh, the, the guys out there in the field uh, dropping the implants. That's a totally different unit, and they operate using a different set of procedures. They have different skills, right? So, um, so I think. Um, I think th- I think one thing when you just realize that this is done at a really high level, sp- spending a lot of money, um, it's something that we're going to have to contend with for a very long time. You know, I, I think one question that we sort of answered uh, here, but I'd love to uh, restate again, is there something that an electronics designers should do in order to um, to uh, Avoid situations like this, or is this one of those things there where once you, um, you know, once you produce a design and once it goes to manufacturing, you kind of lose a lot of control over it. And you just have to trust your manuf- that your manufacturer is not going to be compromised. Yeah, I think it's it's it, well, it goes into also like counterfeit parts and stuff. Is you need to vet your supply chain, and you it, you basically have to trust your manufacturer that your manufacturer has vetted its supply chain and then the manufacturer has to make sure that its suppliers, its distributors that it's using to buy parts has vetted its supply chain as well. So there's a, there's a long list of trusts that have to, you know, be built up. Well, uh, so, so I, I think you're, you're absolutely right with that Parker. However, I don't, I don't think trust necessarily just comes in a handshake most of the time. Well, c- correct. Correct. You know, there, there, there are, there are things in place that that uh, you can demand from a manufacturer such that they can provide you information on where they purchased things who they've dealt with correct and that that is a little bit more of uh, that that is the trust that you're talking about i think yeah 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 like you can go in and make sure that you're getting uh legit parts um you you can make sure you're getting uh um you know your lot codes to make sure that you know your your da- and your date codes to make sure they're actually real parts. Uh, you can vet the parts by sending them back to the manufacturer to make sure they're they're real. Um, it really comes down to like how far you want to go with that with your design and like let's talk about like and it also depends on like how high level. Like if you have a x eighty six style device, it's like well how do you not know that Intel was backdoored by the NSA. Hey, is um, any of this reflected in the ISO standards in any way? Because, I mean, look, here's the way it works um, with both uh, infrastructure hosting and outsourced data centers, but especially cloud. Um, maybe it happens with the largest customers, but I don't think people go to Amazon data centers to go audit their security. That's not the way it works. You can't just show up and go look at how their physical security procedures are done. Now, what Amazon Web Services does, though, is publish a really long list of uh, of third-party audits and, and regulations they uh, they abide by. There's a pretty strong set of standards published by NIST and, uh, and, uh, and I think actually ISO as well, but all of them are related to data security. None of them are related to supply chain security at all. So is there a regulatory body that governs any of this, or is this all upcoming and something we need to really think about implementing in the future if we were to take this seriously? You know, when we talk about ISO, uh, you know, most commonly we're looking at ISO 9001, which is really about process. Um, I don't think it actually provides any real controls here that could prevent something like this from happening because it's, it's mostly focused on do you have a process for everything? 
Yeah. And it's quality related, right? It's not, I mean, process could be very much a, you know, s- supply chain verification process, right? But either I'm not aware of, of a whole lot of security being built into the ISO standard necessarily, right? It's just not a consideration right now. Well, well, and the ISO thing actually goes back to what I was talking with Parker uh, about just a moment ago, saying that if if you needed to trace where a component came from and you were working with an ISO manufacturer, they would be able to provide that information for you because that is a requirement throughout ISO to be able to track where things come from, where you purchase them, where even in your building you have them effectively. So uh, ISO would be more of the quality aspect. Yes, you're you're right with that, Misha, but also being able to track things um, that would come through ISO. But I think think they still suffer. It's, you know, whether you're talking about ISO or ITAR or anything else, they still suffer from the fact that what you're measuring is, is a given process followed? not whether or not a given process is fully capable of catching every issue that could happen. You know, I say, for example, you know, we may have traceability on a part, but when someone's counting that part in, it's not very difficult when they're sitting there on that, that, that reel counter, right? They're loading one reel up. Well, they just put a different reel to feed back onto it, right? They load a different set of parts on there with the same markings. Now your, your part is going through, the process, it's now been changed out in there, and any any actor in that process could swap that out and leave the labels on there. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, this this comes down to uh, what happened recently with uh, that the Japanese steel company Kobe Steel, and basically they were just they were the origin point for steel, and they were just basically. Uh, making fake documentation saying their steel was better or basically taking less quality steel and selling it as higher quality steel and having the proper documentation. And so if Ford was basically like w- would go to their distributor and get all their ISO standard stuff. But when the original manufacturer, of the steel was basically lying about their steel, you no set of standards can prevent that from happening. And that's, that's where we get back to, you know, at the end of the day, these these techniques don't take advantage of just flaws in the process. They take advantage of the flaws in the underlying technology that's being utilized. And given that you can never 100% verify your supply chain, I think it really pushes back to the product designers and the consumers of those products, the design around technology, which can be safely validated or vetted from end to end. Yeah, and by the way, this is something that I have seen before. Um, I, I, I guess I've always thought of counterfeit parts as, uh, as you know, components that you know surreptitious manufacturers introduce in the manufacturing process because they're trying to save a couple of dollars. You actually see this uh, uh, being reflected in some of the stories being written now. What I wasn't aware of um, was that sometimes it's designer choices that lead them to very similar, for example, components, but they're cheaper because they're, you know, they're knockoffs uh, made in China, for example. And that, by, I mean, that, that's where you make a design choice and to trade off cost for a reputable uh, component designer, for example. How prevalent is that? I mean, is that are those just one-offs that I've seen, or or is that not that uncommon? Because that sure is a good way to kind of earn, you know, to design your way into using compromised parts right so i've seen well I, I i've never seen a situation where it led to an exploit but an example would be that i can think of right off the bat would be uh usb to uart uh like ttl level communication chips where the big players back in the day were like ftdi uh there was another one that's sort of the p that was before my time it's called uh ah oh, man I can't remember the name of that one, but then there's like Silicon Labs is a microcontrol, a microchip one. Um, but then there's this company out in uh, or in a uh, thing out in China. Uh, they make this chip called the CH302, if I recall, and it's really inexpensive. And it basically does a USB to TX uh, RX style uh, serial communication. And I and a lot of people choose that IC because it is half the price of the FTDI you know, 23, uh, 230X or uh, the Silicon Lab C0, whatever it is. Uh, so yeah, they, they are design decisions to go with cheaper but 
technically functionally equivalent parts in terms of what the ba- the black box does is but it's like well technically i guess if uh you could put an exploit in that chip but i don't i don't i i don't, I don't see that there hasn't been one that happened yet yeah it's kind of like facebook is it is it is a cheap application because we don't pay anything for it Somebody pays for it, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, somehow, right? So when it's cheaper, is it really because it's cheaper or because it's subsidized by other forms of uh, of uh, financial incentives, right? Correct. And this is my conspiracy side coming out again. Yeah. And I, I could see the same thing happen with, with microcontrollers and like, let's say RAM, like going with uh, cheaper RAM because it's cheaper. I mean, that's it, people just don't think of why is it potentially cheaper or... Is it just because it's just, you know, less expensive? Is there another reason in there? Yeah, so I think this is kind of a layer of, uh, of um, this is layer of controls that we just don't have developed yet. And I think, I think a good parallel to this is the industrial control space, uh, because we've known for a long time that systems that control critical infrastructure, right? First of all, they need to be air gapped, um, and that's that's been a requirement for many years, and yet they're compromised still, right? So there's a lot of regulations that exist in place uh, in order to govern um, how those things should work. It doesn't sound like there's much uh, um, in terms of security and uh, uh, in availability for uh, manufacturing and supply chain uh, security. So I think that's one of the things that we are at a glacial pace, because this always happens at a glacial pace, have to address at some point. Uh, by the way, since we're always uh, up for additional uh, security stories, right? One question you got to ask yourself is: So you have centrifuges uh, in a, a lab somewhere in Iran that are, trust me, they were not connected to the internet, right? Um, they're not supposed to be. I think one of the few places where they actually follow the air gap requirements is probably in a secret nuclear lab somewhere in, in Iran. So, how do you get your malware on there? Um, this was this one's a personal interest for me because we're microfab is here in Houston. Apparently, one of the easiest way to get there is using the scientists because we tr- we trust scientists, right? We don't trust adversaries. We may not trust supply chain even, but scientists that's a different story. They go to conferences and they meet and they talk about ideas. As I understand it, one of the vectors to get uh, and I don't know if this was used specifically in that attack, but I do know that at least one of the attacks on one of those air gap networks happened here in Houston because it is the place where uh, nuclear and other energy scientists a lot of times comes for conferences. The original point of entry was the conference material CD, which tells you when it, when it happened. This was 2005 or so. But the CD that they brought home with them to read the conference papers was the original uh, was the original point of attack. That's what led through several stepping stones to an air gap network and eventually delivered the malicious payload to something that should have never been connected to, to the internet. Right. So I, I think I, this is going to be a little bit of a side question is because uh, I always talk about you know uh, USB devices like thumb drives or whatever being exploited. Like if you buy a real, like you should never plug in a USB drive you don't know like you found on the ground or like your uh, your um, house realtor like gives you a USB drive that's got like 3D models of the houses that you're going to go look at. It's like or, or at a conference <laughs> in Houston, I guess. Or yeah, a conference in Houston. Um, so so on. Let's say just USB drives. Like how do, can you make sure that you're not going to be compromised? with a USB drive. You cannot be sure of that whatsoever. You need a dumb USB charger that is not connected to your to your PC in any way. I, I always assume that every USB device is compromised and you know take that approach. It's just not getting plugged into my computer. I mean, Chris's favorite case are, are, are the the vaping devices, right? The e-cigarettes, right? Uh, I would not pl- I would not plug that into anything that you care about. So, you know, if you don't have a USB hub for this purpose, then you're wide open to a to a supply chain attack. Yeah, and that's that's one thing I want to touch on really fast. You you had mentioned earlier about the concern around components, and you know, the the question here is, you know, what are some of the things we can do? The, the thing that keeps me up at night around electronics are these complex systems on modules, right? The things that they, they have a microcontroller that can run a whole operating system. They're running the Wi-Fi for your device. Or and I know you just posted this thing uh, about Particle. I, I think I, we can probably trust Particle to some degree here. But there's a lot of cheap 
Chinese systems on modules. Oh, we're talking about like the ESP series yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, okay. anything where you've, you you're taking a whole printed circuit board, running its own circuitry with its own control software, and putting it directly in your communication chain. I mean, at the, the end of the day, if I were looking for vectors that I wanted to lock down in my product, I'd start with that. You know, don't put any complex, unsecured, uncontrollable devices in my product. Yeah, that actually is an interesting point because on, on cell phone hardware, you're, the modem that is in your cell phone is a complete black box. Even to yeah. the operating system in the firmware on the phone, mm-hmm. you can't touch that stuff. Because they understand. <laughs> well... It could be that, or it is already, you know, it's the exploits are already built in. I'm I'm the kind of person that thinks the NSA already has that shit unlock. Well, yeah. Remember, remember every uh, every adversary has adversaries, right? So yes. they may inject their own their own uh, exploits, but at the same time, they wanted to harden that against exploits from others. Yes. Yeah, that's the weird side effect of working in the security industry for a long time. And you know, Chris and I have both spent many years in that space. It's not the security doesn't matter. It's just people need to understand that there's adversaries that are you can deal with, and these are individuals and maybe commercial entities. But nation states are just a different story, right? Uh, if we're talking about finding exploits that they've been using for eight, nine years and having firmware on hard drives they can uh, implant, um, there, you know, there's look, there's MMS exploits where you know somebody uh, running uh, protests during Arab Spring, and all of their cell phones can be compromised or shut down through an MMS message. Right? Nation states just operate on a different plane. So to some degree, security really doesn't matter. Um, so there is a difference between um, there's a difference between between what you should be doing for yourself personally, right, versus what you should be doing for your company and your business. And I think that brings me to one of the points I wanted to make. Um, I talked a little bit about uh, the mistake we made about uh, thinking about what is possible and what has already happened, which I think in security world is largely irrelevant. What you need to be thinking about is what's going to happen next. We touched on the fact that software is more and more distributed, but what's the next big wave of computing that's coming your way? And that's uh, industrial Internet of Things, which you know I thought was mostly a BS term for a very long time, but... Um, look, there is a lot of industrial computers that are being dropped into places where we don't expect humans operate and we really don't think about them as something that's remotely controllable or, or accessible. Uh, industrial IoT, by definition, puts a lot of connected devices into place, the last places where we want them to be, right? In water treatment plants, in a, you know, th- there's a ton of products being designed now to measure, uh, you know, uh, pressure and pipes and, and do all sorts of things that could actually shut down physical plants. Um, this is where supply chain security and IoT are going to come crashing into each other at some point, right? The footprint of this stuff is going to be immense. And if we're not taking security of supply chain seriously, there'll, there'll be a price to pay at some point. And that, that, that it comes back from what church was saying with these system on module stuff, where you don't really know what's running under the hood to make that Wi-Fi tick, that might be something that needs to happen in in that space in the IoT space is to start locking down that kind of stuff. Um, one of the interesting movements is with open source microcontrollers like Risk V, and the fact that now okay you have the Verilog code or basically the 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 hardware code. That is that physically makes the uh, gate logic, Misha. Um, I don't know if you ever looked at, at Verilog or VHDL code, but it's it looks like C, except it's not executable code. It's basically describing how the hardware is set up in software. And so now you have that. Now you can say, okay, there is no. You can vet that and say, okay, there's no backdoors in that. That's 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 good. The problem is you still got to ship that off and get that chip made. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the problem. It still has this issue where you have to trust the fab in the manufacturing chain, right? Yes. So, so even if you go, that, that was the biggest thing I saw was like people like, oh, we can fix this by open sourcing everything. And I'm like, that gets you as far as to the people who put that code into a, a uh, uh, Craig, what's it called? The uh, When they make the masks for... The chips, 
What's that mask called? Making masks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't remember if there was a special name for those masks. Uh, I just silicon processing. Okay, yeah, silicon processing. So you get to that point. And then, of course, you, okay, you can get the masks, but it's like, how do you turn the masks into gates and back into something that's human readable? You can't. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think at the end of the day, what we're going to see is more and more attention is paid to the hardware. What we're really looking at is a series of auditable subcomponents that you can use that are auditable and verifiable that go through a tightly controlled supply chain to start eliminating those risks in your product, especially with the IoT stuff. Right? The idea that we can put a product in a nuclear plant that contains a random subassembly from a random manufacturer that was bought cheaply off Alibaba because it was the lowest price component and did the job. I mean, it should be shocking to anyone, right? Yeah, so I, I, think, I think it's I think it's madness, and yet I I think it happens all the time right now without right. a second thought. I mean, I think the the main the fundamental mistake that I've seen now that I've joined the manufacturing world is just how everybody's fixated on lowest possible price, and uh, you know, look, there's a lot of considerations, right? Um, and it is sourcing quality, but it's really more about counterfeit parts. I don't think we think too much about whether um, the, the components we cho- chose are the right components, whether they are trustworthy. I don't think we're necessarily thinking about whether manufacturers can actually be trusted. Um, I, don't, I think it, all of those are secondary or maybe even tertiary considerations, and uh, all of that's going to have to change over time. And you know, that's the reason why, I, look, I'll be honest, I, I'm excited with the, about the Bloomberg story because even if they got a lot of technical details wrong and it, there's a distinct possibility that you know, I think James um, Comey had a really good quote for why people uh, kind of get details wrong. You know, whoever knows about this attack, and I do believe that attack is real, whoever did talk to Bloomberg might have heard about it, you know, not secondhand, but they've been briefed about it in a non-technical manner through three different layers of somebody who's actually working on this technically. So, you know, when Bloomberg publishes a photo of a six-pin um, uh, component, I have no idea if it's a six-pin component or not. Look, that was an artistic uh, drawing of something that may or may not actually be in the field. Uh, it could very well be that the actual component is radically different, right? It doesn't mean that the attack didn't happen exactly the way to describe. I'd be surprised if Bloomberg went out there and wrote a story with 17 sources and there was nothing to it, right? Or maybe the 17 sources were all planted as part of a disinformation campaign to get us to look away from the, the actual know, that hack is, that itself. Is the, uh, th- that's probably the most, uh, the clearest case of fake news that I've seen where, I think it was a lawyer, I'm not going to name which lawyer for which party it was, <laughs> but I think the lawyer leaked the news and then confirmed it to another newspaper source. So they became kind of a mirror corroboration of each other. But again, we're talking about 17 sources. That's not easy to do, you know? Well, I think I think overall, there's there's one thing that we can start with, especially in the IoT uh, hardware community. Let's uh, let's get people to start uh, changing the default passwords on all of these uh, all of these pro- products, right? <laughs> that would be a good start, right? <laughs> let's begin there. I mean, but it makes managing them so much harder. It's uh, I, what was it about a year and a half ago? Was that big botnet of security cameras? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that stuff's by the way, because it, it's left the news and it's. The problem's been mitigated basically by banning giant swaths of IPs. That botnet still exists, by the way. It's still doing its thing. Just you know, now that now that you <laughs> mentioned this, right? So I had to, uh, you know, my, my mother wanted some security cameras installed in her home this past weekend, and you know, even though our viewers can't see it, I have this wonderful big scratch across my scalp here from the. Uh, uh, from the attic doing that. But I thought it was really odd. You know, I got her this you know, well-regarded, easy-to-use system. I set everything up. And when it was time to get everything connected together, it's a, a Wi-Fi security cam. All I had to do was press one button on the camera and it automatically connected up to the network and everything worked fine. And I'm like, that just means that all of the security is pre-baked into this. That means it's going to be the same thing from camera to camera. And that's going to make this really easy to exploit. So if her neighbor was setting up cameras and clicked that button, it would connect to their station. Yeah, they can right. get on either. It's whatever but, network it decides to pick but up I, first. I didn't think to bring my like my laptop and any you know any sort of scanning solution to it to see what was actually going on there because I imagine it's just an open network and that's all it's doing. It's talking to 
you know, some sort of uh, you know API over an open Wi-Fi network that it's got pre-configured keys for, or you know, pre-configured to use this SSID, and it just hits a you know unprotected endpoint and says, "I'm here." By the way, so I'm not only sitting here spreading uh, conspiracy theories, and I actually contribute something useful to the to this podcast. Um, because we're talking about uh, industrial Internet of Things uh, and security, one of the most useful tools out there, and this is this kind of falls in the uh, in the domain of open source uh, intelligence. This is pu- a public resource. Uh, if you're ever curious about what's out there and what's actually connected, and not just connected, but actually indexable and indexed, uh, the Shodan uh, uh, Shodan.io uh, search engine is a fascinating resource. It basically gives you a rundown of uh, e- either address space and what's connected to it, or you can I think you can actually search by device type and actually find what's out there and what the footprint looks like, what versions they're running. It, it'll, there's quite a bit of data in it. Uh, it's a, it's a fascinating toolkit that uh, um, like a, oh I found a way to look for Siemens S7 devices. So it's it's a lot of fun to play with. Didn't, didn't somebody use that same thing to set up a uh, a thing that randomly accesses uh, unsecured VNC instances, so you can go and use people's cameras and look at them and look at their desktops? Right. Well, it's it's also the best way to go out there and look for targets once the exploit code has been published. So when. Uh, the exploit code for this uh, supermicro uh, implant finally get gets leaked, um, and again in, the, in my Alex Jones voice, it's only a matter of time. Um, the very next thing you guys should do is go to the Shodan uh, uh, search engine and look for targets before somebody else finds them. Because, like Parker said, if they're if they're single use denial of service uh, uh, um, implants, then uh, you may have a short window when you can run the exploit. And I'll just point out that that chat roulette open unsecured desktop open VNC thing is a great way to spend a bunch of time. It is. It's it's a research tool, but it also can be used for a lot of mayhem. Very entertaining at the minimum. Was well, there anything else we want to talk about, or do you want to sign this out? No, look, uh, I'd love to hear uh, uh, some of the audience feedback on this because this is one of those topics that I wouldn't say directly relates to uh, to engineering, but yet I think every engineer uh, does care about it, even though it's not entirely clear what engineers can do uh, can do about it. But um, I, I, I suspect supply chain security is going to be a topic for a long time, and it, you know this is the first time we're, uh, we've seen a major story break about uh, about manufacturing as a vector that somebody uses for an attack. I doubt it's the last. Um, I think there is going to be a lot of ideas. There's going to be a lot of interesting viewpoints. It's going to be a ton of skepticism. And ultimately, I think this is going to have to have to be a topic in the future because there may not be a whole lot we can do about it now, but I think we're going to have to contend with this for a long time to come. How people get a hold of us, Misha, is in our Slack channel. So you should definitely, you know, <laughs> go camp out there next couple of days. I plan to, especially since uh, HipChat is no longer a viable chat tool. So I think I have to switch to Slack either way. <laughs> So I think uh, Misha was the one who signed us in to the podcast. So Church, sign us out. Yeah. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your guests, Chris Church. And Misha Goffertine. And we were your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. See you later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or security question that you want Stephen or I or Church or Misha to discuss, tweet us at MacFab or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel, which Misha will actually have to download and make an account. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest MEP episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.